Welcome to Tactical Breakdown Podcast. On today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Adam Maxwell of Vortex Optics, one of ILET's newest strategic partners. And I just felt this was a great follow-up episode to the last episode with Tyler and Jeff. Uh, staying in the realm of shooting, we're talking all about optics today, um, and uh, specifically from Vortex's perspective, but uh, diving into a bunch of different things. And so uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation I had with Adam Maxwell. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey everyone, Adam Kanakin here with the Islet Network. We're doing another episode of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. And with me, Adam Maxwell from Vortex. Adam, thanks for joining me, brother. Yeah, glad to do it. Happy to be on the show. Absolutely, man. It's uh I think we I may have to just refer to you by your last name. Referring to somebody who has the same first name as you is always just a weird thing and a weird experience, and I don't like doing it. So Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of a trip. <laughs> it is a trip. Yeah, yeah. So uh I'll just pretend like we're back in uh, I'm back in service and we'll just use last names because that'll work. Yeah. Um real quickly, dude, like you uh you and I ran into each other at uh, at Ilita in St. Louis earlier this year and Vortex you guys were set up there. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast and you don't know, I lead as the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association. And um, it was really cool to see you guys set up there, man, because it's kind of the tip of the spear when it comes to getting in front of the top trainers in the world. And Vortex is making a really big push into the law enforcement space with your optics, which I think is great. I mean, obviously, um, there's been a lot of a lot of innovation in that space in, in the last couple of years. And it's really cool to see you guys up on that because most people think of Vortex um, and they don't automatically think of law enforcement, right? They think of hunting or they think of um, spotting scopes or they think of um, the, like, the, for example, the, the new military uh, contract that you guys landed. Law enforcement is its own kind of beast. And so I'm excited to pick your brain about what Vortex is doing and and um, why all of these, uh, why you guys are making such a big push into the market. So um, excited to talk about that with you, man. Yeah, me as well. Um, really, <clears throat> kind of like you said, uh, we've done a lot on the commercial side of optics. Um, quick history, you know, it essentially started as a bird watching company, a bird, a Wild Birds Unlimited franchise in the 80s. And then um, <clears throat> basically with uh, the owners taking an interest in, and having an affinity for selling optics, wanted to grow outside their franchise on the retail side, which kind of led into the e-commerce boom of the early 2000s, where they saw the future being uh, their own brand. And then it just kind of took off from there. And law enforcement sales has always been, um, you know, a um, uh, it's been utilized kind of as low hanging fruit. We got approached to do it. And so we did. Um, but it was never uh, given the attention that it's been getting uh, for the last few years where, where ownership really decided to uh, put some more sales force um, and uh, an effort behind marketing to the, the law enforcement community and their needs. So that's what we're doing now. We, uh, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're trying to get at the conferences where, where we can get in front of the decision makers, find out what the needs of the customers are and, and how we can uh, support that with, with our products. Yeah, that's really cool. And and our conversation in St. Louis centered around a two two kind of key things that I think are really um, really picking up a lot of traction in our in our space right now. And one is uh, low power variable optics, 
and the other is uh, red dots on on uh, sidearms. And so, where which one of those you want to start off with? Because I think we should talk about both. Um, but we can we can kind of jump into either or and uh, and navigate those waters. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Those are probably like on a on a topic standpoint. Those are the two we get asked about the most um, currently. Aside from just, I would like a quote, take my money. Um, but uh, yeah, those are the two kind of most talked about topics recently. And um, um, actually kind of going around the country doing presentations on low power variable optics. So I'm, I'm spun up on that one uh, currently, uh, but, we, but I do both. So, so whichever you want to tackle first, we can tackle. Well, let's talk low power variables because... It, it is. I've had some really interesting conversations over the last couple months about them specifically, and and I don't know. I don't remember if you and I spoke about this in person, but there's a. I think with low power variable optics, we have this battle where we're trying to get the agency to understand the value of purchasing it for their patrol rifles, um, but the the overarching thing that people seem to want to push forward as a narrative is you're just making it easier for officers to kill people. You're just, you're creating a bunch of snipers and they're going to be just shooting more people if you buy them optics for their rifles. Um, and, and that's a narrative I've heard over and over and over again, but it's really interesting because it's really the exact opposite. And I think we just do a really piss poor job at explaining ourselves um, when it comes to the, just the very like um when it comes to the usefulness of a low power variable optic and the use cases of it on a rifle or a patrol rifle for that officer right the the things that it can do and, and using um and learning how to articulate the uses of that optic system on the weapon so that we can identify what we're doing with it so it showcases that we're actually trying to reduce the amount of uses of force with weapons um, and you know, we can take that optic and we can use it as a way to recce a potential situation right at a distance. Um, one of the big things right now, and, and I know you're aware of this, the amount of, um, uh, officer ambushes that are taking place around this country, uh, around the United States, um, more specifically. And that's something where it's like, listen, man, if you're able to post up a block back, you know, pull out a rifle and take a look you're going to be able to seize potentially some of those, those, um, those spots that you wouldn't see. Otherwise you'd have to drive right up into them. Um, and before you know it, you have, you know, you have lead coming at you. This is one of those things that could actually potentially save an officer's life um, by putting them in those positions. Or conversely um, you have an officer who now has the ability to, to reach out and see something more clearly and positively identify certain things in a scenario whether it be does that suspect actually have a weapon in their hand or what type of weapon is it because you can very like the closer you get to it you know from 50 feet back i may not be able to see that this person has a nerf gun that's been painted but if you have a low power variable optic on it that's something that could potentially be identified so that you realize hey we can downgrade our force options here because of your ability to do uh, further reconnaissance on that situation as a whole. So I think there's a lot of really interesting talking points around low parallel variables, but it really, for me, comes down to the crux of how do we articulate to leadership that these are actually going to prevent us from using force, not as an escalation of force. 
Yep. And that's essentially you got a lot to unpack there, but that's basically what we've turned into, you know, essentially if it has to be an eight hour course or, you know, just to scratch the surface of, but yes, that's kind of, it, it's goes both ways. It's, it's, um, it's, it's helping guys have the ammunition they need to approach admin for making the case of why we need this or as, as departments have decided to integrate them, what should it be used for and what are applications of it? And a lot of it, I think, is also dis- dispelling myths of what it will or won't do. Um, it, the fortunate, unfortunate of of kind of being in the firearm space in the law enforcement community is is everyone wants to be the smartest guy in the room on this stuff. So you have a lot of um, pseudo knowledge floating around out there that was kind of put out by people who didn't knew enough to be dangerous and kind of put it together and then it got repeated. Um, so, you know, it's they, my personal vendetta right now is kind of just going out there and spreading the truth about what these are, what they do and, and how to use them. And more importantly, what they don't do and what, what's kind of uh, fallacies around them. But, but you're absolutely right. We, we essentially have a, a piece of equipment that makes a patrol rifle more versatile than, than, uh, than it is with iron sights or a red dot, um, which is kind of the application of a patrol rifle in the first place. We don't really know what it's for. We might need it for a a variety of things. Um, Whereas other optical solutions now have kind of gone down the realm of making a a rifle more specialized for for a specific application. Yeah, I think that's, um, and let's, we can dive into some of the, the specific, like technical specifics of, of these systems, but for me, when I think low power variable optic, I think of uh, words that jump to mind would be like versatility, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's useful in a lot more places than just one very specific use case, like you had said. Yep. Um, uh, you have a, a wide um, uh, a wide angle. So like when you, you see it, you actually have a wider field of vision um, mm-hmm. than some other optic systems. Um, and you, the fact that it's also... The, and this is, I mean, more, I don't know if this is more of a controversial one, but um, it's also useful in low light situations as well, because it can actually bring in, <laughs> it can bring in more light, right? And so mm-hmm. there's the, when I say like that, that variability, but the, the usefulness of the system is so, it, you can employ it in so many different places. Because when you think of like, uh, especially officers that are working in rural areas, right, you know, I can understand if you have your officers and you're working in the downtown, like center of a metropolitan uh, core um, and your engagement range is going to be like 50 feet or less. I can understand that. Um, But when you have these officers that are pulling up and they may be posting up as cover and they're a hundred feet away, 200 feet away, um, you need something that's going to be able to actually assist you in that situation but at the same time, your next call, you may be responding to something where that engagement range is a lot shorter. And so you have to be able, you can't, you're not, you can't be sitting there swapping optics off your weapon system or potentially downgrading to a hand, uh, like a, a handgun, um, where you're, you're taking away some of your capability, um, from an offensive position, um, because the, the long rifle that you have, isn't going to be suitable for that close range environment. Um, and so, those are some key things that I think of when I think low power variable that are critical in discussing when we talk about why officers should be adapting them for their, for their use. 
Absolutely. And even if you're in, a, in an urban setting for the most time, you know, that's that's the justification for a lot of it. But also in a lot of those urban settings, do you have a school? Do you have a, uh, a super center shopping center? Uh, you start doing the math on corner to corner inside a Walmart or a high school. I mean, you get out to 100, 200 yard shots. They they are theoretically plausible, you know, in a given jurisdiction. Um, so that tends to be, you know, that's capability that you tend to have to plan for if that's in your area and kind of the way I like to frame this conversation just because I like history uh, personally. So I, I kind of combat this a lot with, with uh, various agencies is like, Oh, this is the new thing that our gun guys want, right? Like this is, this is the gadget of the year, the gadget of the month that they want this budget cycle. What's up with these, these new scopes. And my retort to that is it's not new. Um, and it actually came from a place that's very similar to this application. Uh, we can trace the use of low power variables or the need for low power variables uh, quite precisely back to 1993 and the Battle of Mogadishu, which for those not familiar is depicted in the movie Black Hawk Down. Um, but uh, the, the Delta Force operators came back from that battle and had a fairly intense uh, debrief on their capabilities one of those that came out of that was uh, the need for an optic that had CQB capabilities, but also some sort of uh, increased magnification for longer engagements or more importantly, PID, because all of a sudden they had hostels mixed with a civilian population in a crowded urban setting. Mm -hmm. And they needed to be able to pick these these individuals out and and shoot them. Um, and so that's where the solicitation came from. I mean, and at the time, aim, aim, uh, red dot technology was very new in the aim point 2000. The things were practically duct taped on the guns, but, um, uh, really all that was available at the time was, uh, low magnification safari, dangerous game scopes. Um, the industry wasn't quite ready for them yet, but that solicitation from Delta force, uh, and what ultimately lived on for a little while as the Schmidt and Bender short dot is kind of what started all this. Uh, and then the industry really started to have some answers and get behind it when uh, coalition forces were deploying to Afghanistan uh, in the, in the early two thousands where they started to need intermediate distance capability um, in, uh, in the, the mountain country there. <clears throat> but that the, the, genesis of the optics themselves was that need for increased positive identification of a target and precise engagement of it in an urban setting and then evolved into the capabilities that they needed in you know at moderate ranges with with the same rifle oh it makes a lot of sense right um and and you're right in in using terms like pid again it comes down to that conversation though right it's um you you go to a you go to a civilian oversight committee and you say yeah we want these rifles because they're going to give us positive identification <laughs> on who we who we should or shouldn't be shooting um those those are just it's crazy difficult conversations right because everybody tries to spin that on you're just trying to be able to shoot someone and you're mm -hmm. like no you that's not what we're trying we're trying to avoid having to do that and i think that's that's one of the things that these optics are going to give every officer the ability to do that and and when they can say i i can i guarantee you when i went up there this is what i what i saw right 
because yeah. now we have a, a, a mechanical assist for our vision that says, hey, this is how this is what our eye can do, right? You throw a red dot in front of my eye, my eye is still my eye. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, well, and it's it's kind of the d- dichotomy between law enforcement and military applications that we see in sniping. I mean, both have have quote unquote snipers, but the difference in application between military sniping and law enforcement sniping is completely different because military sniping, they're generally shooting somewhere. They're trying to stay away and they only have to hit a human sized target and incapacitate them on the LE side. The distances are statistically extremely close, but they're also have to be extremely precise. Um, So, you know, even on the on the sniper side of the house, people get get really excited about the long range component of that. Whereas like the real the real meat and potatoes of designated marksmanship in law enforcement is being able to hit things very, very small, but at very, very close distances and very precisely, um, you know, and there's there's examples all over the place. The most the the most cut and dried one that we saw recently was about about a year ago in Phoenix uh, where uh, we had the, the typical hostage situation in the middle of a street guy has a kid uh, and uh, is, is shooting rounds into the, into the McDonald's in the middle of the street and officers rolled up on him. And from 50 yards out in the middle of the street, they make, they make the hostage shot, the head shot on the guy. And they did that with, with a low power variable scope, tuned up the magnification just a little bit and had to place that bullet very precisely to not hit the child, but incapacitate the suspect. And that's, that's, you know, the, the quintessential case for what, what low power variable optics are for in, in a patrol rifle setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's great. When, um, what do you think the, the current exposure is on low power variables across the U S right now? Like if you were to, if you were, right, well, I don't mean me exposure is the wrong word, but like, what's the saturation in the, for law enforcement agencies, would you say we're even at like 5%, 1% of agencies have them? Like, what do you think? Ooh, um, I don't know if we have a good measure of it, uh, but I would put it at, I would put it in the W. I would say somewhere between 10 and 20%, very similar to, I think, where we're at with red dots on handguns, not to segue, but uh, everybody's in kind or a lot of people are in kind of this exploratory phase of like, well, we'll let our instructors try it or we'll let our SWAT guys try it or, and we'll see where it goes. Um, um, you'll see a lot more early adoption on smaller departments for sure, especially rural. Um, but um, it's kind of, it kind of varies and we're in that, we're in that transition phase, very similar to, you know, the wave we saw with patrol rifles from subguns and shotguns or uh, to semi-auto pistols when we evolved out of revolvers. It didn't happen overnight and there were there's going to be some holdouts for a long time. But I think we're on um, we're not on the bleeding edge anymore, but we're on the edge where it's starting to gain a lot of traction. Um, I would say a lot of the customers we see are buying red dots or simply replacing, um, you know, worn out inventory um whereas a lot of of um, agencies that are integrating new systems are looking pretty hard at it or are approving it for individual use that's interesting when when an agency comes in and says hey we're looking to replace our our current red dots 
Um, is that usually a fight with them to say, Hey, listen, yeah, we can totally get, you know, get you set up with these, but I have something else for you to take a look at. Is that something that happens regularly? It really depends. Um, if they, if they're qualifying the conversation with, they want red dots and magnifiers, uh, that kind of signifies to me, someone who's open to the potential that they need some magnification, uh, departments that are shopping and they just want red dots and that's it. Uh, no magnification. Uh, from a sales standpoint, I, that I kind of view that customer as their mind's made up, um, so they might not be ready. Um, but it's kind of similar to the transition of we rarely see a department go from iron sights to op or low power variables. It's usually iron sights to red dots and red dots to scopes. Very rarely do they skip a step um, because there's kind of an evolution of of. Uh, of thinking that needs to go on as pertains to equipment before they're kind of ready to consider that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's, and the, the firearms training space is always something I find fascinating. I mean, I'm not a firearms instructor, but I know, right? <laughs> in speaking with a lot of them, it's, it's, you have like the die hard holdouts that mm -hmm. it's, you could come up with the fucking most high, like you could say that this thing is going to make you 10 times the shooter, um, the regular officer, a 10 times better shooter, they're going to be like, nope, that's not how we do things here. Like, and you're like, ah, you're killing me. But it's, yeah. okay. it's kind of those conversations <laughs> where I'm sure you guys get that a lot where, mm -hmm. you know, you may send um, demo units or whatever to an agency. And I guess it really kind of falls on that instructor group. That's the, the, the testers that are there, whether or not that individual is ready to adopt something new or not. And I really think that's the crux of, of can be a lot of this, right? It's, the agency could be open to it. Shit, the officers on the ground could be open to it. But if the flow through is that one person who says, like, I don't believe in this, then it could it can kind of hit a hard wall right there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of why. And as a company, we're very we're kind of a gr grassroots up type of approach. So that's where, you know, we try to educate people at the street level and at the sergeant level to get on board and then they they bring it up or they pitch it pitch it to their brass um uh we we tend to get the buy-in that way and then anybody who's handled the system very very rarely are they opponents you know they might they might be like yeah i get it but we don't have the budget well, well that's a whole other thing but um uh, very rarely do you approach somebody with an open mind and give them the information do they say no that doesn't make sense that's that's very very rare now there are you know you run into closed minds but that's that's a closed mind so um the 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 information the information and the, the capabilities of the systems very much speaks for itself um if we if you look at it objectively yeah no absolutely and, and i think too i mean one of the things um and i, I don't want to just jump back into something completely different but um, I'm just trying to think of like benefits of all, like the, the scope versus something like a red dot. Um, I think one of the biggest ones, cause the ones that I've personally run into is, uh, is batteries, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, if you don't turn it off, um, or you don't turn it on <laughs> it, that shit ain't going to work when you need it to. Yeah. Um, and the, I think the nice thing about the low power variable optic is you don't have to worry about that. It's going to work regardless that reticle is there. Um, and it goes one step further in low light because a red dot 
functions off of a re reflection. What you see when you look through a tube of a red dot and you see the red dot, that's a reflection uh, being presented to your eye. To see that in different lighting conditions takes a different amount of energy from the emitter or a different brightness intensity uh, for you to see it. So as you get into low light times, the the variance between what it looks like when your white light is off versus what it's like when it's on varies quite a bit. Um, and you will need a different red dot setting for both of those things. Uh, whereas a, a backlit reticle on, on a, a low power variable scope, cause it's either an etched reticle or it's, it's a physical wire reticle. Um, it's just backlit against whatever you're looking at. So it's somewhat auto, it's not auto correcting, but to your eye, it always looks correct because it's not dependent on an electric um, uh, presentation or, you know, um, it, it doesn't have to be on to work. Um, you're just you're just perceiving through it. Um, so that's definitely definitely a benefit of the system. So and and like we'll find with a, as a lot of these avenues that we've gone doing and the reason they're getting popular now is because the scopes have evolved to the point where they'll do pretty much everything a red dot will do and more. So people get kind of hard pressed to say why they don't want to use one because they can't really find something that a red dot does that a scope won't do now if we have an objective conversation about it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I can also see the argue. I can also see the, the point of conversation now too, and you can say, hey, listen, Chief, if you switch over to these scopes um, in 75 years, it's going to pay for itself in batteries alone. <laughs> yeah, that's, sometimes that's the route they go. Or you look at the cost of one wrongful death suit. You know, um, you know it just kind of depends on the guy you're pitching to. But yeah, that's that's absolutely, you know, because like I say, and and a lot of times when when folks are exploring these scopes, they approach us with red dot questions. So. One of the first questions I'll ask, what's the battery life on it? Well, why do we care about battery life in the first place? Well, it's because in red dots, they turn them on and they leave them on all the time. They're worried about people forgetting, so they just leave them on. So they need this ridiculous runtime um, to facilitate that need. Well, that do doesn't directly apply to this optical system. So, yeah, the runtimes are going to be completely different. Um, but, you know, it's kind it's also kind of a kind of a moot point if you look at it in a practical sense. So, yeah. And I, I never even thought of that too. Like, I mean, the amount of batteries that these guys must burn through if they leave their optics on all the time is nuts. Yeah. And then, and then the flip side of that, well, what, what if he forgets and nobody notices and then he has to use it? Well, okay. But you don't, it, the red dot doesn't need to be on for the low power variable scope to be effective. It can enhance. And in fact, truth be told, you know, I come out of the, the competition world the I, I shoot three gun competitively um very rarely do i actually turn it on like it's a supplement it's not mandatory uh and it can be a hindrance so if you turn if you turn it on on you know setting 11 it's a big fireball in there sometimes it can be distracting for what you're trying to accomplish so um it's not necessarily um an every application thing but when you need it sure is handy um is is really the the uh the function of the illumination in a scope yeah 
No, it makes a ton of sense. Well, while we're on the topic of red dots, let's talk about that. Let's talk about sidearms and uh, and red dots. I had a I had a really interesting conversation at Shot Show this year um, with a few different optics companies, but um, one of them has a, a new enclosed emitter that they're using um, with their optic, which I found interesting. Um, I found that the enclosed emitter, because from my time with the military, um, we're up in Canada, and I'm like, well, shit, if I can prevent and and this is this is me not knowing anything about uh of optics and i'm saying i'm saying i'm like what the hell do you mean an enclosed what the hell is an enclosed emitter and i I had no idea um and then they're sitting there and explaining it to me and i'm like oh that makes sense so if it's extremely like dusty or if there's moisture that gets in there you can throw off um the actual sight picture there which was interesting to me so with taking officers handguns and putting their their primary sidearms putting a red dot on it um, what are some of those key things that agencies are saying either we want them because of this or we don't want them because of this? You're talking red dots or closed yeah, emitter? Red dots. Red dots. Um, the the criticisms are or the concerns points are usually battery life, um uh integration, so train up and and um uh best practices for them, and then uh usually usually failure rates, you know, uh, thank you, Sage dynamics, but, um, uh, essentially those, those three things. I mean, the amount of testing that goes on with red dot handguns is crazy. I mean, um, name me another piece of gear that, a that a police officer carries that goes through the kind of freezes, thaws, baking drops, um, you know, just abuse, like does, does an ASP baton get this much abuse to get approved? Does a radio get dropped from shoulder height five times before it's approved for use? Um, so the, the testing on the dot, some of it's merited, you know, some of it actually, you know, when the, when the systems were first coming online, yeah, they were, they were fragile. Um, but, uh, I'll, at the same time, I think some of the testing has gone to the extreme, but that's usually one of the big concerns. Uh, the battery life is a big concern. But realistically, on battery life, if we if we get to a year, like beyond a year, so like the batteries should be changed annually. I think that that can kind of be where the battery life conversation ends, because realistically, the systems will run, and the battery will theoretically run, but the battery doesn't degrade linearly. So like if a if a battery if a battery had 10,000, you know, hours in it, the, it doesn't, it doesn't degrade in, in a consistent fashion. It's not a straight line. It's a curve. So as a battery gets weaker, you know, it, it, it's strong for a while. Then it starts to degrade. Then it really starts to degrade. Then it really goes downhill. And when you get to the end there, like it's barely running. So at, at what point, and this is one of the things in the, in the optic industry, when you're quoted a runtime, uh, you know, this optic lasts a hundred thousand hours. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean it's still on? Does that mean it's bright enough to see? Does that mean it's at full intensity? At what setting was that on? It's, there's no industry standard on that. Um, so realistically a manufacturer can quote whatever you want. We'll tell very specifically how we, how we advertise our numbers, but there's no industry standard on that. But then you know, you're, you're also dependent on the chemistry of the battery, which was my main point, which on the whole is very inconsistent. 
So you got a you got a highly engineered system, and the weakest link in the whole thing is essentially the disposable battery of varying chemistry and consistency. And then it's also dependent on ambient conditions that it's exposed to. So, you know, you up in Canada are going to have completely different exposures than I'm going to have in Wisconsin is going to be completely different than my friend in Texas. So that varies a bit too, you know, in, in uh, how an optic and a battery is going to perform. Hmm. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it was, it's so interesting to me, just like the, the things that people would say, why we wouldn't want a red dot you know it's you've seen competitive shooters use red dots for how many years now and obviously the best i i can't think of the last time i watched a competitive shooter not use a red dot in obviously in in um competitions that allow it right because there's certain ones that don't but yeah well the way i say that one is if someone could have won open division in uspsa or ipsic with iron sights they would have done it by now right in a division where it's legal it's it's legal cheating um it's and it's well and that's that's the thing it's kind of like it's that conversation of performance enhancement right yeah so this this it's i understand and i've had conversations with a lot of firearms instructors that have been around for a very long time that like started with revolvers back in the day right Mm -hmm. and like you had said the transition into semi-autos and now using like the the newer generation weapon systems and then going to red dots that that transitions can be slow it can be laborious it just like it's like trying to pull teeth getting them to get into it but once you do it's like once you get them on the gun with the optic and they get to use it they're like oh that is actually easy like what like for me transitioning to a red dot for the first time i i I couldn't figure it out for like a good half an hour Mm -hmm. yeah but i'm an idiot but after that, like you said, it's it's kind of like cheating. It's you now. I think here's an here's an argument from a firearms instructor though that and not not me, but one could argue the the problem I think with a lot of people that have with red dots is if you have a brand new officer in academy that gets issued a firearm with a red dot, there is a potential if that if they had, that instructor isn't extremely switched on that they don't learn the correct fundamentals of shooting because they're, they're automatically falling back on that red dot, right? They don't understand um, the, the proper site alignment, site picture, that kind of stuff, which I, I, and that's an argument. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. It's I'm saying I've heard it. So I, I thought you were going to hit me with a hard argument. That's the easy one. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, anyone going through the Academy now was they weren't, they didn't grow up shooting BB guns in their backyard. They grew up playing video games in their living room. So they follow the dot and click no matter what. Um, so that's automatically intuitive to them. They, they, they get it already. And then the training, the fundamentals on iron sights is also a bit archaic because it's like, uh, I don't know. You're probably of the age group. Did they, did you learn to uh, write cursive when you're in? Yes. elementary school man when they were teaching me to write cursive there's a man by the time you're in sixth grade you will mandatory have to use this and blah 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 hours and hours and hours learning calligraphy when i got there they didn't care they're like whichever you can write legibly that's what we care about so same thing in handguns especially in law enforcement 
most law enforcement professionals don't care about shooting handguns except when they have to shoot handguns and then they have to be able to do it to a standard. And that's what red dots do. Iron sights are, are tricky because they don't work the way your mind works. Your eye can really only focus. You can only hard focus at one distance at a time, one focal length, if you will. To properly use an iron sight, you have to focus at three different focal lengths and align all those things together, which can be done. And we have we have techniques for that. And that's what's been taught. Um, but it is counterintuitive to the way your mind works and the way you visually perceive the world. Whereas the red dot presents it in the way that you naturally perceive the world because the red dot appears in infinity. You don't have to line it up with anything. If you see it in the window, that's where the red dot is where the gun is pointed. Um, so, so the justification that you have to learn this archaic system that isn't really the way your mind works anyway, and it's kind of tricky, um, uh, I, I don't know about that. Um, I think a lot of the resistance to red dots is the, the hurdle of change. So I think that's just the natural, natural adversity to change. Um, but then also once people learn it and they become accustomed to it and then go back, I, myself as a competitor, I, I use both. I, I'm, you know, a class going on master in open division and limited division. I go back to limited division to keep sharp because I have to, I have to teach both and understand both. You don't understand how hard irons are until you experience something else and you get proficient on something else. That's the key is being proficient. You have to go away from irons long enough that you have enough time on red dots that it's not the new thing. It's just the thing. Once you go back to iron sites, then you realize how tricky it really was. And, and I think, Red dot shooters are better iron sight shooters, but it's because they visually learned something about shooting that they weren't necessarily getting before and probably certainly doesn't come through uh, the institutional inertia of, of uh, law enforcement handgun training. Yeah, well, great points there, brother. That's that's phenomenal. Um, I I cannot wait for some of the comments in the comment section after this. Some of the Me neither. angry, angry... <laughs> I'm just pulling cans and, all caps. Just throwing hand grenades in the room and walking away. You know, that's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> we'll have to um, do more shows. Yeah, for for me, red dot. It was it was difficult to catch on immediately, um, but then afterwards, it was it was easy. It's like, uh, and then especially when you get, and then you don't realize too. And this goes outside of the the topic of our conversation, but using different weapon systems so for example like when i started shooting i was with the canadian forces and so we used browning high powered so a 1911 platform so going from that and learning to shoot and being proficient on those to then going to like a glock or a smith and wesson or or one of the polymer handguns um and then learning and shooting those and then learning how to shoot a red dot on those i'm like okay i got that sorted out but then I went back and I actually had the opportunity to shoot a friend of mine. He actually has a um, uh, staccato uh, 2011 with the red dot on it. It was like, it was set up as a race gun. And um, I didn't, I, I couldn't explain it to somebody. He was like, he was like, so what was it like? And I was like, it was like shooting butter. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was like going from a platform with Glock, which now we know is ergonomically not correct on how our hands should be aligned when we're holding a firearm which um, if you don't already know that there's, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're hearing for the first time ever that Glocks actually are not 
ergonomically no. designed for you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but going back to that 2011 platform, it was a game changer. And I re- and then I realized at that point, the, the real issue that I had with the red dot on the Glock was because of my alignment with my grip using the Glock. Yes. Not in, going back to the 2011, it lined up every single time. It was crazy. Well, it's, um, it's exposing it, yeah, personal yeah it's exposing your fundamentals in between there which was the same across the board that's why like the the transition from a high power to a glock to a 2011 is is perceivably hard is because the fundamentals the same the trigger control is the same of prepping the trigger lining the sights breaking the trigger but the trigger sensation itself is completely different between those guns the sensation is different. The fundamental is not different. So someone who has the fundamental can pick up either of those three guns and be very successful. Someone could pick, could learn one of those guns. Okay. Not have the fundamental, but f- kind of cheat the system and figure that gun out, which I mean, if you're issued a gun that that's really the only one you got to know. But the reason it was hard is because of the fundamental of trigger control between the three and the three presented you three very different triggers. Um, Whereas if you take the slack out of the trigger, align the sights and press the shot, you can be successful with either of those guns with fairly little transition. And it's the same thing with the red dot. If you present the red dot to your eye, the, the quote unquote finding the dot question isn't difficult. But if your grip's kind of janky and your draw is even worse, you know, then yeah, it's going to be difficult. And then the gun recoils. And if you don't have recoil control and it doesn't come back, then yes, you got you got issues. But you had those issues with iron sights too. It's just you didn't have a big red, quote unquote, laser beam, you know, that you it's harder to lie. It's really easy to lie to yourself on iron sights because there's subjectivity. Like, yes, they're aligned. I pressed the shot and I didn't get the results I wanted. Well, were they aligned? Whereas with a red dot was was the red dot on the thing that you wanted to hit when you press the trigger? You know, yes or no. You don't necessarily admit to anyone else, but you know, yes or no, it was there or it was leaving or it was just getting there. Um, so you have a lot more irrefutable feedback to yourself as to what the gun is doing. And, um, sometimes ego can get in the way there because again, we have this, we have this, uh, uh, intense desire to, on the warrior spectrum to like this, we are, must be a master of weapons. And if we're not, well, that, that equates into work that we need to do to get better. And, and that, that gets into the, uh, the humanity of the issue. But um, but the the thing with the red dot is, is that it's it's indisputable feedback as to where the gun's pointed and what the gun is doing. But that's also the beauty of it, too, because that becomes a diagnostic tool. Now you can ask dispassionate user who has to qualify twice a year. Well, when you shot, where did the dot go? It went high left. OK, well, that means that you jerked the trigger and you had weak grip pressure on the left side. You know, so it's somewhat of a diagnostic tool that a, a, an instructor can can ask a question and they can get an objective answer and then have a direction to go to diagnose and set up that officer for success, which we don't necessarily have with an analog iron sight. I really like that point. I actually, I love that point, right? I mean, um, I use, I have, um, I don't know where it is. Back here. I have... Uh, Mantis is one of our uh, new sponsors. Um, I don't know if you've ever used these Mantis X um, systems before, um, but they they go on the the end of the gun. 
um, and uh, it's it registers with an app on your phone and it basically pulls everything from your draw stroke to alignment to recoil all control mm -hmm. everything um, but if you don't have one of these right and you have an instructor with a line of 20 officers um, and now you're relying on the feedback from that officer because if you're not directly watching them or even if you are that instructor it's it's going to be a lot easier for them to make faster corrections on the line because that shooter has that 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 kinesthetic feedback plus hey i saw the red i love that the dot went up to the left it went down straight down straight up to up to the right whatever it is and that instructor now can make those faster adjustments rather than be like what happened i i don't know shoot okay a couple more what happened i don't know right oh my gun I, shoots I, low left right and then yeah and then the the rounds on the target are fucking wherever they are so yeah um, which is usually what my targets look like. It's just a, it's a scattering of, of bullet holes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's science, right? Energy is neither lost or created, just change forms. So the recoil is just energy leaving the system and it manifests itself through the path of least resistance. So however the gun recoils was the, the, the path of least resistance in your grip. So when it goes in a certain direction, you can then correlate that to how did you support the gun in that area? Anything up and down, that's that's a grip pressure and wrists. And then anything right to left, that's that's the bias between hands or trigger control. Um, so and and it's a very it's a very good tool because if, if the you know if the dots leaving the window, okay, that's recoil control. Right, left, hand pressure. And you can, as an instructor, you can have, I mean, it's really only three or four things that will address 95% of the problems. So you can go up to somebody on that that line of 20 people be like, hey, so so what are you seeing? And most of them want to do well. So they're going to tell you um, if they know what they're supposed to be watching for. And then you can be like, oh, okay. And then you take a look at their grip. All right, here, try this. Give it a go again. Okay, did it look different? Yes. What did it look like? You know, and you can you can go that route very quickly in this system where you kind of traditionally in the iron sight world end up chasing your tail. And this is where, this is where all kind of the, the, I mean, that's where that, uh, that target came from the one that the diagnostic target that tells you how to diagnose your, your grip based on where you hit it. That's where stuff like that comes from because people have all these, all these uh, idioms they are, they're trying to diagnose something because iron sight shooting was so objective. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. And again, I guess we, what, I guess that goes into like, what are some of the key reasons why agencies should be taking a hard look at allowing their officers to carry red dots on their, on their sidearms? One of well, one of them, obviously, like we just addressed here is it could be a massive training tool for those officers. I mean, um, but what, what other key things do you, do you normally see or normally discuss with these agencies? Well, they really can't afford not to is is the main thing i mean again you go to the wrongful death suit it's like okay but essentially you have um your qualification scores will go up that's statistically proven uh at least at least 10 if not 20 or 30 percent so qualification scores go up um uh wrongful wrongful death stuff goes down because the bullets go where they're supposed to go with a higher a higher uh, percentage um, but the other one that I like to point out is, is the, they're, they're training efficient. 
So they are more efficient in ammo and time for in-services because you spend less time just trying to get people to qualify. I mean, so many agencies tell me, you don't understand. Our people really suck. Like we spend all of our time just trying to get them qualified to be on the street. Well, okay. So what if all those people, what if you didn't have to do that? You know, what, what if, okay, now we have all this in-service time that we could actually work on other stuff. Let's work or work. How do we interact with firearms around vehicles? How do we draw? How do we, you know, how do we shoot in low light? Shooting in low light's the same, but the dynamic is different. And if you, you know, the first time you experience it, you probably don't want it to be on the street. So you free up all this time that you spent getting people to qualify and you can use it on other stuff. So now, now you can, can hone level two, level three handgun skills instead of using all your time and all your ammo, just trying to meet the bare standard to get people on the street. I think that's the most undersold part of it all. Um, but the increased effectiveness of the system, uh, it's easier for the incoming generation to, well, it's easier for anyone to learn, but it's, it's more easy for the incoming generation to learn. Older generations with failing eyesight will be effective in service longer because they can see this system as eyes age better than iron sights. And then, um, like I say, I mean, if, if the hit, the hit factor goes up, um, then, then all the, the police statistic of, of all the bullets that didn't hit the suspect goes down as well. So I really don't think agencies can afford not to in 2022 and going forward. Now that major metropolitan areas in the U S and around the world are adopting these systems, I think we're going to see the cascading effect now, but I think what's held it up is nobody wanted to be the first, you know, they didn't, you know, I sat in an LAPD presentation when they were starting theirs off and essentially they, they said, we've kind of realized that, you know, we have to do this and nobody's really going to do it until someone like us does it. So we're going to get all the guns. We're going to get all the red dots and we're going to figure it out. Um, they've, they, that LAPD presentation in particular they said they that agency has visited red dot technology three times since the early 80s and now essentially that was that was three years ago now but um now is the first time that they've felt the technology was ready for the street and they were right um but now it has to go through all the vetting of a system that is going to get integrated into you know, as serious of a role as law enforcement, because we're not talking about competition shooting. We're talking about something that has to stand up in court. We have to talk about something that's going to get bought with tax dollars. We're going to have to talk about something that, um, you know, is going to get issued to dispassionate users who are not necessarily going to take care of it. And it's going to get exposed to various weather conditions. And all those questions have to be answered before it's used on the street. And then it has to, has to stand up in court. But, a lot of that legwork has been or is being done now. So I don't think the barrier of entry is as great now in 2022 as it was even five years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful on, on the outlook of this, right? I mean, it seems to be like we're trending in the right direction with the use of, of optics, right? Whether it be the low power variables or the red dots, um, which is, which is really cool. And, and because you have so many high-level companies, yours included, that are continuously pushing that standard, 
right? Which mm-hmm. is, which is, I think, you know, um, competition begets innovation, right? So like you guys, and I, and I understand with the, the stuff that Vortex and I've seen the stuff and we, we got to play with some of the stuff that you guys have. It's phenomenal, but that just means that your competition's coming up, nipping at your heels, trying to make the, the next thing, right? Which continues you guys to push forward, which is always going to mean the, that that's really the best outcome for those officers, right? Oh yeah. The more you guys fight to create better optics, the better t- uh, product the end user, which are the officers in this case, actually get to use on their on their weapon system. So I'm excited for all of that. I think that's all cool. Absolutely, and you know, like a lot of uh, you know, new products always in development, and um, uh, we've definitely seen the need to address the needs of this market in particular, and um, have begun developing uh something that's going to serve it very well our product right now is is uh i would say adequate um but we're we're on the cusp of coming out with some some pretty exciting things what the customer doesn't always see is that it takes years to bring a product to market from from napkin to to your dealer's shelf takes easily three years um and then you know and then we had all the all the 2020 2021 challenges on top of that um but yes this is in in terms of handgun optics this is a very exciting time to be be in this space because uh the technology is evolving very rapidly because the the devices were originally designed if you look at the original rmrs and the original delta points and um and our razor they were intended to be secondary optics on carbines that's what they were for and then someone got the idea that hey this thing's small enough if we we like ground down our pistol slide we could put it on top there but that was a completely different set of conditions than the optic was designed for so essentially everybody had to go back to the drawing board and redesign you know this optic to be in this environment take this kind of shock and take this kind of abuse and serve this kind of customer on top of that they had to be something that was you know smaller than a toad <laughs> or a small frog you know i mean like that's a lot of componentry to get into a super small space so like the technology behind uh wiring and soldering and circuit boards and and uh led emitters that all had to evolve as well and lenses the lenses themselves and the anti-reflective coatings all had to evolve um to a pistol a pistol application um and we're not alone in, in having having had to go through all that um, but that's essentially what you're seeing now in some of these second or even third or fourth generation optics, uh, from us and other manufacturers hitting the market is they've gone through that evolutionary process. Um, and now they're trying to make them even smaller to get into the, the plain closed guns, you know, so that makes it even, even more difficult and then still having battery access and, and things of this nature, you know, it's, it's a, it's an engineering challenge to be sure. Here's, here's a question I have for you. When it comes to the pistol optics with the red dots, at what point do, because so here's, and now here, this is an interesting conversation I had at Ilita. There were some officers that were had a, a red dot with a very large optic, like a, a, a large viewing window. Mm-hmm. And then like, I'm used to, like I had a, an RMR, like you had said, like original version of it, which is a very small viewing window, right? More mm-hmm. rectangular. Um, is there a point where you go, we can't make this any smaller without causing issues for the shooter? 
I don't know that we could say there's this point where we can't make it any smaller. I mean, if you look at that loophole thing that came out, it, it's very, very small. Um, window size and and its utility to the customer really comes down to uh, that individual's fundamentals and recoil control. Because a, a, a very switched-on shooter <clears throat> with good fundamentals... As long as the dot comes back, like the the whole thing about dots or window size is they don't want the dot to leave the window. Well, dot leaving the window, again, that's recoil and energy leaving the system. If you can control the recoil to a point where it doesn't leave the window, it's not really going to be an issue to you. But if the person next to you on the line doesn't dry fire two times a day and they're not a grandmaster USPSA shooter, they haven't shot their gun since the last time they were on a qualifying line. That person probably isn't very good at recoil control. So the gun is both recoiling more and it's recoiling inconsistently in their hand because it's moving around. So to that person, that person's going to like a bigger window better because they're going to have, they're going to be able to track the dot longer under recoil and they're going to see it come back sooner under recovery where the more advanced shooters aren't as concerned about it because they know the dot's going to come back because the gun's going to return to its initial um, uh, point of rest before the shot. Um, so window so, size is all, all, a, all a function or relevance of window size is all about recoil control. And then the same thing on presentation. If you have a consistent draw presentation, you don't care. If you have an inconsistent draw presentation, you're going to like the bigger window. So let's now take that and, and take that information and, compare it to agencies adopting this wholesale for their officers because if you take an so for example i think we can agree that the people that are testing out these optics aren't novice shooters they're usually the firearms instructors for the agencies right yeah so their competency on that weapon system including fundamentals is going to be different than officer smith or whatever who's on the street who only qualifies twice a year do you think that there would be a concern that the when the the instructors select an optic that say hey this this works great for us do you think that there's a concern that that optic may not be the right fit for the novice shooters which is the majority of the department um and or should the officers at some point be given <laughs> a a selection of optics to choose from based off of their shooting level Let's come back to that second part. I think the first part, um, I'll use the analogy of a military sniper team. The more switched on guy is usually not the guy shooting. He's usually the spotter. Um, I think you kind of, in the in the, in the the red shirt world of, of department, I, that's what I call the instructors in, in agencies. They always have red shirts. But <clears throat> uh, in, the, in the red shirt world, they tend to think about this a lot because it's their thing, right? Well, A, they're passionate about it, and B, it's their thing, and C, they're the expert in their agency on this. So they really dive into it. Sometimes I think when you hand it to just the beat cop on the street, doesn't care, uh, he, just, he just picks it up and does it because he doesn't think about it too much. And that person would probably be more successful than the person who overanalyzed it. The, the be Even in the competition world, the best shooters in, in the world cannot tell you how they did it. They just, they just, they just pick it up and do it. The best instructors in the world aren't necessarily the most, uh, the most accomplished because they understand it. Um, 
but they weren't necessarily, maybe they understood it a little bit too much that they got in their own way. So that's kind of, I think that's kind of how I see it um, in, in the instructors picking it and, and, uh, and worrying about the, the common guy. I think sometimes, sometimes the agencies don't give their people enough credit for, I mean, these are still intelligent professionals that, you know, make responsible decisions. They drive to work every day. They fill out the reports on time. They, they come in uniform. Like if they know what to do, they'll do it, you know? So that's, it's just a matter of, of them knowing what to do. And in my mind, I don't, I think people maybe, maybe make it into more of a thing than it is. Do you think that we should be using, uh, uh, have the officer choose which type of optic they're going to use on their sidearm? Uh, I think so. But then again, I'm a gun guy, so I don't want to be told what gun to shoot. I want to shoot the one that I like. Um, but I think, I think the industry is kind of honing down onto what the ideal size is. Um, but I think what you're seeing now and where we're at on red dot handguns, similar to where we're at low power variables, you aren't seeing very many agencies yet mandating their use. I, there may be one at this point, um, but I don't know of a major metropolitan area that's saying all shalt use red dots. Um, there are agencies, um, uh, Houston, I believe Las Vegas, um, Los Angeles, uh, a few of these that are, <coughs> excuse me, authorizing their use. So they're either authorized for SWAT or they're authorized for individual officers. So officers have the option, <coughs> excuse me. And I think you're going to see that as a first wave before you see an agency just go across the board. Um, so I think um, authorization is usually the first step. And it usually starts at the instructor cadre or the SWAT level. And then kind of the next step that we see is they start training cadets with them at the academy so that they just come out of the academy. That's what they know. And they don't have a transition. And then as as the generation turns over in, in the force, you have more and more people spun up on it. I don't know of anybody yet that's just said, all, all shalt use red dots. Um, we're in the we're in the. We'll let you use them if you show us that you can handle it. Um, capacity. <laughs> Don't screw this up, or we can't have nice things. You know. Pretty much, yeah. That's the industry standard, right? That's why we have no nice things. Let's be honest. <laughs> we have very few nice things. <laughs> very very few. Um, what uh what do you have going on this year i mean you you i caught up with you in st louis um where are you where are you heading to next what's the next training and stuff that you guys are doing uh next for us is ttpoa down in texas um so we're going down to that conference uh and i'll be teaching uh the the low power variable integration uh course down there as part of that in addition to vending um, so that's next for us, uh, in the short range, we'll also be at OTOA in Ohio, um, NTOA in the fall in Milwaukee. And then, um, a lot of it, honestly, uh, I, uh, I'll go out and visit individual agencies, individual people that write into us, email us, you know, um, trying to get this thing done and be like, Hey man, would it help if we just came out and, and walked you through it and they'll say yes. So, I mean, 
you don't necessarily have to be a big fish agency for us to come out and visit. In fact, we, we like going to visit the small ones probably even more. Um, so a lot of, a lot of small individual consultation stuff too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the West side of the U S my colleague Bryce is on the East side or, uh, <clears throat> or we collaborate a little bit in between, but, uh, we're just, we're just going out and, and visiting the people where they are because that's, that's what we do at Vortex. So. Well, I love that. And, and if you're sitting here, you're watching this on YouTube or rumble, or you're listening to this, um, if you want to get a hold of Adam or the team that Vortex, uh, you can either get them through the website or you can come to uh, just send me a quick email and I'll put you in touch with them directly. And then you guys can have those conversations and uh, get some new optics and shit. Uh, brother, I appreciate you taking the time with me today, man. This has been a fun conversation. And um, when we before we spooled this up, I know we had a lot of topics that we were potentially going to touch on. So um, I think it definitely um, means that we're going to have to have you back go more deep dive and down the rabbit hole on some other topics in the, in the near future. But um, until then, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you guys are doing at Vortex. I'm honored that uh, Vortex and I are, are going to be partnering up and, and supporting one another, especially with what you guys are doing now and, and pushing into the law enforcement space. I think it's phenomenal and uh, looking forward to our next conversation, dude. Absolutely. We, we love engaging customers wherever they are. Like you say, contact me directly and uh, we'll talk about whatever you got going on. Otherwise, I, you know, I like doing this stuff too. So hopefully we'll just pick up some of those explosions down in the comments and we'll, we'll dig into those and, and, uh, hash a few of them out and, and, uh, hopefully the people find it entertaining to listen to. So right on dude. All right, man, we'll stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks for having me. Join the Islet network. Now go to Islet.network. That's I L E T dot network.